The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. The S&P 500 posts its worst day since May and the Dow loses over 600 points as sentiment takes a turn while the Nikkei sinks on its return from the long holiday weekend. The uh, S&P warning, or rather uh, Standard & Poor's warning the deeply indebted Chinese developer Evergrande will likely default without direct government support, with Beijing unlikely to step forward in support unless there's major market contagion. European governments holding emergency talks on aid packages to combat rising natural gas prices. But the UK business secretary plays down supply fears. There is absolutely no question, Mr Speaker, of the lights going out or people being unable to heat their homes. And the Fed kicking off its two-day meeting as investors look for news on tapering. But UBS's Paul Donovan tells me as part of a WEF session at the global economy, uh, the central bankers can't do it all. Fed Chair Powell is not a used car salesperson. Um, Fed Chair Powell cannot influence the price of used cars in the United States, and there's no way he should put the economy into an economic downturn just because the price of a Honda Civic from 2001 is rising at 45% a year. And Universal Music Group prepares to list here in Amsterdam today, valued upwards of 33 billion euros. Meanwhile, Swedish fintech Klarna has its own ambitions for an IPO, but the CEO tells me just not right now. The volatility in the market right now makes me nervous to, to, to IPO, to be honest. Like, I, I think it would be nice to IPO when it's a little bit more like sound. And right now it doesn't feel really sound out there. Oh, very good morning. You know, Pavel- oh, you're back in the office. <laughs> yeah, I'm back. <laughs> it's like a surprise. Well, but ta-da. Yeah, you did say, because well, I've just got yes. a big blank wall here. You Because so normally there's there's something on that, isn't yes. there? So you say, well, what are you doing? So you can yes. work out what you're going to say. But yes. it's like Pav's lost dog with the uh, the producer's morning. Oh. Because the mar- I knew that when we were both being here, that market must have had a big move overnight. Yes, absolutely. Because we there's construction come the wall, that comes we? down from CNBC HQ management. If there's a big move, get them yes. both at the wall. Wheel them both out. Yes, yes. And Katie got the message. Well, here we are, the big guns. <laughs> We're back speak, at the wall. Speak for yourself. Summer, uh, but this will be over. this will be intriguing. It's obviously a big surprise that they've planned in advance by not putting a, a graphic it's up here. Be big. So let's let's have a quick look at uh, the graphics on my side here. I don't think it'll be a surprise to anyone uh, who is watching these markets closely for me just to stand in front of these big chips here and give you a sense of what the decline looked like to the end of the trading session yesterday. And of course, you'll all know as well that it could have been a whole lot worse because we bounced off the lows here and before. Before everybody gets, uh, you know, foaming at the mouth about the big declines we're going to see and how terrible this market sell-off has been, I think it is just worth pointing out that even as we've um, obviously had a bit of a rough session yesterday, and I was here the same time yesterday talking about the the pickup in volume on the daily trading sessions and whether that is an indicator of a shift in momentum and whether you should take on board those technical factors around the 50-day moving average and so on and so forth. 
When all is said and done, we are only, what, 4% away from our all-time high on the S&P 500. So before you uh, start looking over the ledge and wondering if it's time to uh, do something dramatic, bear in mind that that's what these numbers represent at this stage. It looked very aggressive yesterday, but in numerical terms, we're not that far away from these record highs. Obviously, uh, a lot of uh, analysts now and strategists coming out giving their opinions. Uh, just a couple that I thought were interesting. I read up uh, a little bit on John Hussman's latest, and he still thinks that these markets imply very weak returns over the next 10 years. As always, he tends to take a much longer time frame view on uh, how you invest and the kind of returns that you expect investing rather than speculation here in the uh, shorter term probably just worth mentioning uh, JP Morgan's uh, Kalanovich uh, who's written up um, I think on CNBC calling this as a technical move this is the chief global market strategist Marco Kalanovich uh, putting out a note on Monday calling this technical and nothing to get too worried about. Uh, the corollary, of course, is that we had a uh, movement in the Treasury yields and the Treasury story, but I'll just park my element of the wall for a moment because I'm fascinated to find out what Steve's going to look at. But let's well, just show I'd you the session. We're going to have a look at the session. Yeah, I think you're well, I was waiting for the director to prompt me, but um, it, I had to suggest that we were pulling it to an end before I got the prompt. But there you go. 1.7% uh, across on the session. And that was the point that I made earlier on about um, where what happened through the, uh, the whole day, how we bounced off the lows. You know you've upset the director in the first Well, it won't be the first time, will it? No, that's But true. after yesterday, he deserves it. No, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we weren't mentioning yesterday. Oh, we're not talking about yesterday. No, we're not talking okay, about the last fine, 10 minutes, fine. 20 minutes of the show. Uh, let's have a look at the sectors and where they're currently trading. Uh, we've pulled out some of the biggest sectors uh, in the US. I, I think there's something else going on here as well, but I'll come to it. So IT down 1.9%. Why IT would be down on the back of China uh, and a Chinese debt story? Well, it remains to be seen. Consumer discretionary, a lot of that, of course, is Amazon down 2.4% as well. Uh, S&P communication services down one9 Financials down 22 Look, um, why don't we put up the VIX as well? I don't want another you know, frosty situation with the director again, but 23.55. Um, part of your volume story, by the way, I did want to say from the yeah. previous session, was all oh. about the quad witching, really, the quadruple witching yes. and witching we had on this side, i.e. multiple expiries, single stock options, uh, stock futures, etc. as well. So I think a part of it was that, and that's where we saw that uh, positioning on Friday and hence the extra volumes as well. But I think there's yeah. something else going on now. Before oh. I go off down this route, I just want to say... The fact of the matter is we've been here before about five or six times in the last year where every single time we've had one of these declines, the buyers have come back in uh, and aggressively bid the market up to, as you were saying, new record levels again. So let's not all get too excited as of yet, as you quite rightly say, about it being 4% off our record highs on indices that have skyrocketed to valuations, which in some people's views, like for instance on a Cape valuation, are matched only by key points in history, such as... 1929. So the point is here, I think the Evergrande story uh, is about the sum of all fears and it just taps into a lot of those psychological concerns that haven't reared their head too much in the last year since we've come off our lows, well, year and a half of March 
2020. But the fears about corporate debt. Now, how many times have you, I and others banged on about the stunningly large amount of corporate debt that has been added in the last year and a half as well, onto levels that were already rather large anyway? So I think it's about that. I think it sums up also property fears. I mean, we've all, we all own property. We all live and breathe that problem. When we buy our next purchase, or let's say some of you buy a second property or you invest in property elsewhere, you're always very worried about the valuations at the moment, given where we've come from and what zero rates around the world have done to property. I think there are broader China growth fears as well. They come and go every single time as well. I think there are fears about the financials. I mean, maybe some of them are irrational, but the fact of the matter is the level of delinquencies at the moment has been flattered and zombie companies not going to bust has been flattered by, again, the largesse of central banks and regulators and authorities well, not to call in those loans, not to force those loans to be called in. So I think a lot of their previous financial fears, any of us who've been around for 10 minutes have got, I think the property fears, I think the China fears, I think debt fears uh, across the board. They all come to the fore in a story like this. Um, can I just say how well Adam did then putting up the futures? I thought that was terrific timing uh, keyed into the comments that you were making about some of the fears. Well done, Adam. That was brilliant. I think the director's having a terrific morning, just to put, make that point, because he has the facility to I turn down my mic. The first <laughs> He's going to get really cross, and we've still got two hours and 50 minutes of the programme to go. But let, let me just make a, a point, some, some points on the other side of that, because I absolutely agree with you, and I think there are so many existential fears out there that are just making people pause as they think about pressing the send button to their broker on the next purchase on the dip, which is uh, uh, what we've seen here. So yesterday, what did we talk about? We talked about the really strong PPI number, mm-hmm. how some yeah. of these inflationary pressures are feeding through yeah. into factory gate prices. 12% the year-on-year figure out of Germany. But a lot of that also indicating that there is strong consumer demand to support those um, increases in prices. And there are reasons to be concerned about labour market shortages. Again, you know, labour market shortage ta- sounds like a terrible phrase, but... The reason for that should be a positive, that there are job openings and there are positions for people to fill and those people may not be there or they may at the moment be on furlough and just waiting to come off the uh, unemployment line perhaps to take those jobs. So all of those things are very positive. And then yesterday there was one sector that had a fire lit under it and that was the airline sector Mm. because in the morning we were looking at Lufthansa which went up two and a half percent straight from the open when the brokers had already called it down two percent because they got I think the market already got a whiff of the change that was going to take place mm. with the United States allowing passengers yeah, in they from also Europe and elsewhere. They also misunderstood what a rights <laughs> issue looks like as well and how to price one. Well, too, many, okay. too, too many times we see the, the experts not understanding what a theoretical X rights price looks like. Before we get into <laughs> those specifics, but I agree with you, the technical aspect of that may have been misunderstood, but the point was I think the market already got a whiff of a shift in policy, yeah, I think you're right. which looked like not only a positive for the airline sector, but it looked like another important step forward in the battle against COVID. Most profitable routes in the, the planet, Americans some of those. could begin Atlantic. to open up those pathways, then maybe that suggested that we are looking at a lockstep improvement, yeah. really, in the opening yep. up of the global economy post the pandemic. But, you know, you don't want to hold your breath and you don't want to make a big bet on that at this stage but it does look encouraging and it's in- instructive the director again adams 
way ahead of us here as usual and he's popped up the European market calls. I think, so something, I think, I think there's something going on between you two today. I, I kind <laughs> well, of feel like I'm, I'm stuck in the middle for a change. Normally but, me is the most combative one. But I mean, they, they, yeah. they look quite positive, don't they? Well, yeah, well, yeah, he's got them up early for me. So let's have a look. Opening calls. So FTSE, uh, FTSE what? It's about 300 points below its most recent highs of 7,200. Where it's down to 6,800. Yes, they closed around about 6,900, but uh, we are caught up to 6,948. Zetra DAX, where we're, uh, Jeff was just referring to those uh, PPI figures from yesterday. Uh, up 73 points. CAC 40, um, up 21 points. And the FTSE MIB over in Italy seen up 130 points at the start of trading. A lot of holidays still uh, in Asia Pacific. We don't have mainland Chinese markets. We don't have South Korea. We don't have Taiwan. But the Japanese are back in action. So just catching up on some of those declines we saw in other markets uh, down 1.7%. Elsewhere, the ASX 200, two tenths of 1% higher. Uh, and the Hang Seng over in Hong Kong, down four tenths of 1%. Right, Jeffrey. Uh, let's talk about Evergrande then. Uh, the indebted property group is unlikely to receive direct government support from Beijing unless there's a risk of a widespread contagion across the Chinese economy. This uh, according to credit rating agency S&P. Uh, Sam joins us uh, with the latest on this so- story. And, and Sam, I think what we were hearing yesterday was that uh, the company had begun trying to barter with property units to assuage the anger and the losses of those who had financial products for this company. Uh, What more news do we have today? Are they going to be able to make their interest payment on Thursday? Good morning to you, Jeff. Well, uh, Evergrande is certainly trying to ease some of those investor concerns. We had some comments out today, but uh, just quickly, I think, you know, the big question, as you were alluding to, really is now just what Chinese authorities are going to do right now and uh, whether they're going to step in and throw these guys a lifeline to prevent any sort of domino effect in the global economy, which clearly global investors are worried about at the moment. We've been putting this to a lot of guests. Some analysts say that the Chinese authorities have plenty of tools in the toolbox to deal with this, some don't. And so while the answer to that question remains very much unclear, we continue to see shares in Evergrande under pressure today for the seventh straight session. Now about 4% lower. We did see them about 7% lower earlier in the session after that 17% drop we saw yesterday as investors are clearly worried about the liquidity crunch at this company and also these payment obligations that are coming up. I'll just uh, run you through those to recap as well. They're looking at $83.5 million worth of interest due on a bond that expires in March, another $47.5 million due next week for a bond maturing in 2024. Investors seriously on edge about a potential default and a knock-on effect of all of that. But as I say, in what appeared to really be in an effort to soothe some of those investor worries at the moment, we did hear from the company's chairman earlier this morning uh, who did say that Evergrande is confident it will walk out of the darkest moment and deliver property projects as pledged. So those are the comments from the Evergrande chairman that we got this morning, as you can see up on your screens there, that is a statement coming, uh, coinciding with the mid-autumn festival. And that did come, as Jeff pointed out, as S&P Global Rating said, it does not expect Beijing to provide uh, any direct support to the company unless there is a risk of contagion in the Chinese economy, which we know is already suffering from a slowdown when it comes to things like consumption and manufacturing, uh, when it comes to a lot of that data. In the meantime, of course, we do know that this has had a ripple effect on the property sector, broadly speaking, as there is some concern about the systemic risk there. As we do know the property sector, guys, makes up for a big chunk of the Chinese economy, about 25%. 
Jason, thank you very much indeed for that. Right, uh, famed short seller Jim Chanos has lashed out at China, saying it has become, quote, a terrible place for U.S. investors. Uh, really interesting piece, actually. Have a look at it on uh, that CNBC interview. That's on our website at cnbc.com. So as natural gas prices soar, UK suppliers have sought state support. Whilst the food industry has warned of major disruptions to supply chains, European governments are now discussing aid packages for households and suppliers. On Monday, the UK government held talks with energy companies discussing a scheme to offer state-backed loans, although it's not expected to bail out struggling suppliers. UK Business Secretary Kwasi Kwarteng played down supplier fears. We have sufficient capacity and more than sufficient capacity to meet demand, and we do not expect supply emergencies to occur this winter. There is absolutely no question, Mr Speaker, of the lights going out or people being unable to heat their homes. There'll be no three-day working weeks or a throwback to the 1970s. Such thinking, Mr Speaker, is alarmist, unhelpful and completely misguided. Is it completely misguided? It's very interesting from the business secretary there. Anyway, look, Dan joins us now from the Gas Tech Conference in Dubai. Well, I guess by and large, they're very happy about the price increases we're seeing, Dan. Yeah, I guess you could say that, Steve. And look, I think it's interesting. I've just wrapped up a conversation with Lorenzo Simonelli, the chairman and CEO of Baker Hughes. And he says, look, this situation in Europe and the UK really identifies an obvious truth. And that is, we are going to need to see investments in renewables in order to decarbonize. That's where the industry is going. That's what the industry CEOs are saying. And that's a reality. But at the same time, we also need to see investment into fossil fuels to guarantee energy security and supply. So the verdict is still out on whether or not renewables are going to hold up long term, but clearly that's the way the industry is thinking now. Now we're live at GasTech 2021. This is the largest in-person conference being held since the start of the pandemic in the gas sector. And throughout the course of today, we're going to be hearing insights from leading industry CEOs and players about how they're viewing this crisis in the UK and Europe, and more broadly, how they see gas prices trending longer term. Of course, we've already seen prices triple throughout the course of this year. Whether or not we're going to see any moderation in gas prices to come remains to be seen. Also in the oil markets, yes, prices tracking at around 75 US dollars a barrel. There's a lot of optimism, particularly from the OPEC plus leaders about where oil prices will go longer term, but exactly what happens also remains to be seen. So we have a lot to unpack over the next few hours for you. And I'm also pleased to say we're going to be speaking with Joseph McMonagall. He is the Secretary General of the IEF. I'll be asking him about this situation in, the Euro- in Europe and the UK and, of course, his outlook for energy prices and commodities broadly. I think there's also an interesting narrative playing out from a geostrategic sense here as well. A lot of questions about Russia's involvement in this European crisis. I'll be asking him about that as well. So stay tuned. We'll bring you more insights throughout the course of the day. Guys, back over to you. Terrific, Dan. Uh, If ever there were a place to be at the moment to analyse one of the critical stories for, for the next six months, surely it is gas tech. It'll be very interesting to hear that. I've done a few gas ticks myself. You've a little a bit jealous I'm not out in Dubai. <laughs> um, I did a good one in Barcelona. Did you? That was nice. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. That's fascinating, isn't it, these industry uh, sessions, because you learn a lot more. Well, I did quite a few panels, and yeah, even with my 
I suppose, a bit of background knowledge in energy. There's only a certain number of gas panels you can do. <laughs> Keep your, you know. Before it turns into hot air, I guess. Yeah. Uh, coming up, uh, the fallout from the AUKUS deal continues with France saying there is a crisis of trust in the US. We'll talk about that when we come back. You didn't mention the director for about three minutes there. Um, anyway, for more on the global market action, amid jitters over the Fed, Evergrande, gas prices and our director, Adam, you can check out the Squawk Box podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Welcome back. The Fed's FOMC meeting begins today as officials prepare to lay out a timeline for, well, raising interest rates. I, no, I don't know about that. Um, I don't know. I think they've actually, I, I, I'm going to beg to differ with our producers because I think that the Fed has been at pains to say what they're going to do with tapering is nothing to do with their timeline for interest rates. I think they are absolutely. So I don't mean to be pedantic, but I don't think they are going to lay out a timeline for raising interest rates over the next three years. I think what we will get is, as they're saying, the new dot plot forecast, which will be released tomorrow after a significant August. Non-farm payrolls miss raised expectations of a taper announcement being pushed back from this month. And again, I'm going to say to November rather than December. Sorry, I'm being all pedantic with the reads there. I'm with you on that one. I think November is penciled in, although I wouldn't be surprised if we're really talking about 2022. And again, my my pedantism, pedanticism, Mm -hmm. I don't know which way I'll say it, about the timeline for interest rates and tapering. I think that Powell has been very, very um, concerned that the market realises that one is not going to necessarily lead to other. Yes. Um, let me move on. Uh, hotter than expected inflation from me as ever. No, no, no. For hotter than expected inflation is creating a potential drag on the central bank's plans to raise borrowing costs. Yet speaking to me at the Virtual WEF Sustainable Impact Summit yesterday, Chief Global Economist from UBS, Standard Chartered, argued inflation is not here to stay. We have, or what we have had, is very narrow inflation. So one or two goods prices rising, one or two services rising. And it's not the job of central bankers to intervene in a specific product market. You know, Fed Chair Powell is not a used car salesperson. Um, Fed Chair Powell cannot influence the price of used cars in the United States. And there's no way he should put the economy into an economic downturn just because the price of a Honda Civic from 2001 is rising at 45% a year. We know that over the COVID crisis, the peak of it last year, there had been a lot of thinking through just-in-time supply chains and whether that was really going to work or whether there was a better way of doing this. 
But part of the reason why we can be so confident that inflation will probably revert to the trends that we had seen for the decades in the build-up to the COVID crisis was that we know that greater globalization helps to bring about that price competition. The high level of indebtedness is a problem. We tried to solve it and has been solved for a period of time through the um, uh, debt suspension initiative. But I'm very worried because that is coming to an end by the 1st of January. And so low-income countries will have to start paying um, interest and principal again from the 1st of January. We've just discovered that they're nowhere near out of this crisis. And so that is coming to a crunch and it concerns me greatly. I'll tell you what, just looking at that shot there, yeah. I didn't know Michael Gove was moderating. Uh, I, I, thought, thought, it, I, thought, I thought, thought it was Joe 90. <laughs> 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 I, I didn't know we were showing it there with the old uh, goggles on. Yeah. Uh, it does look a bit like Michael Gove, I'm afraid, doesn't it? You do look a bit A little like bit Michael. taller, though. Yes. Oh, it's hard to tell in the shot. <laughs> uh, the EU Commission's Ursula von der Leyen has backed France in its criticism of the AUKUS deal, saying lots of open questions remain about the way it was treated. Meanwhile, French Foreign Minister Jean-Yves Le Drian has reiterated claims that France was betrayed, saying the submarine deal was a breach of trust. The fundamental principles of being partners and allies is that we discuss things. We aren't there to hide from one another in order to elaborate strategies that are different from those we have made known as allies. This is what's surprising and shocking. This is why there's a crisis of trust beyond the breach of the contract, as if Europe itself didn't have any interest to defend in that region. This necessitates clarifications and explanations. This will take time, but this action has a huge impact, and I'm not the only one who has this sentiment. Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison has continued to defend the decision, insisting that the AUKUS deal is in the country's best interests. This is all about, always about ensuring that Australia's sovereign interests will be put first to ensure that Australians here can live peacefully with the many others in our region, because that's what we desire as a peaceful and free nation, the peace and freedom of all of those who live across the Indo-Pacific. So I look forward to having these engagements. They're very important as we follow on from the significant announcement we made last week with our American and British friends. But it's also about engaging with so many more who uphold the cause of peace and freedom. Yeah, a lot of noise from the French, a lot of noise from the Chinese, but actually as Gideon Rackman the FT pointed out, a lot of noise not coming from other key partners in the Indo-Pacific area as well. A lot of people very pleased about what they've seen. So uh, very interested to see who is upset and who isn't upset by this deal. Elsewhere, shares in U.S. airline stocks rose amid uh, news the country will reopen international flights for vaccinated travellers starting in November. The easing restrictions will affect visitors from 33 countries, including China, India and most of Europe, and marks the end of a travel ban imposed in Jan 2020 by the former president, Mr. Trump. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.